Well, really happy Easter to you. Thanks so much for being here. So good to be together. And uh, I don't know how many of you have Netflix at home, uh, but our family's recently got Netflix, and it's fantastic. And uh, we've just discovered this American drama called Suits. Anyone watch Suits? Love Suits. It's our, it's our kind of favorite American sitcom at the moment. And uh, if you've not seen it, Suits basically is... It's set in the kind of uh, American kind of courtroom uh, legal system. These guys are, are lawyers. And so kind of inspired by our favorite TV program at the moment, I wanted to put one particular Bible verse through the courtroom this morning. And so we're going to look at a verse together. It's in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. If you haven't got a Bible, don't worry. These verses will come up on the screen in just a moment. And kids, on your way back, come back as quietly as you can and do some great coloring because there's some good chocolate on offer. All right, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. This is a man called the Apostle Paul who's writing these verses roughly 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. He says, For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. I want to put these kind of through the courtroom this morning and you may be here this morning as a Christian, you may be here as someone who is not sure if you're a Christian, maybe some of the stories you've just heard chimed with you that maybe once you had a faith but now you're not quite sure what you believe anymore. Maybe you're here and you're quite sure you're not a Christian. Well, wherever you are this morning, I want us to almost be the judge and jury this morning at looking at these verses and really asking some questions about the Easter story because the Christian faith is based on these three facts, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And if these three things are not true... I would suggest to you that the Christian faith is the biggest and most evil hoax in the whole of human history. Because these three facts would have deceived literally billions and billions of people across the centuries. Today, some two billion people on our planet would say that these three truths have made their lives different. That Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. If, however, these three things are true, I would suggest to you that it should change the whole course of the rest of your life. If Jesus really did die, if he really was buried, and if he really did rise again, this is evidence that demands a verdict from every single one of us this morning. So I want to look at five Easter pieces of evidence about the resurrection of Jesus. And at the end, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to them. Here's the first piece of Easter evidence about the resurrection. The stone and the seal. The stone and the seal. Matthew 27, 66, we read this. So they went and made the tomb of Jesus secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. What happened after the death of Jesus is that the Jewish authorities, aware that Jesus had predicted that he would die and then rise again three days later, aware of this fact... They wanted to make sure that the tomb was as secure and safe as possible from anyone who might want to come and steal the body of Jesus and fake a resurrection. So one of the things that they did was that they went to the Roman authorities and said, listen, we need a guard and we need a seal on this tomb. 
Now, when a Roman seal was put on something, it was basically like a kind of a wax mark. It was a bit of a, an early kind of quality mark that was put on something. And when a Roman seal was put on a piece of evidence or a site like this, it was the Romans saying, we have double-checked this site. It is absolutely secure. We have checked the contents of this tomb. We've checked that Jesus is in there. We've checked that he's dead. And this is our Roman guarantee that no one will tamper with this particular graveyard. And they put a seal on the tomb of Jesus to guarantee its safety. And we've got to understand that when a Roman seal was put on something, there were severe punishments if anyone broke that seal. In fact, the punishment was to be crucified upside down if you broke a Roman seal. In other words, you didn't break a Roman seal half-heartedly. And yet we read that the Roman seal was broken. The question or the fact that demands a verdict from you this morning is, who broke the seal? Who broke the seal? And for that matter, who rolled the stone away from the tomb? Now, again, you've got to remember that this tomb, which was a, this tomb, uh, was a, 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 a tomb that was carved out of the rock. It was a rich man's tomb. And there was a large stone weighing probably about two tons that was put on the stone entrance of this particular tomb. That's the equivalent of a, a white rhinoceros or a small Asian elephant. In other words, it was flipping heavy. And to put this, this stone in place would have taken several men with levers and crowbars to put this thing in its slot in the ground. And yet all of the gospel writers tell us that the stone was moved from its place on the first Easter Sunday. The question is, who moved the stone? Was it the disciples sneaking in the dead of night, somehow getting past the Roman guard, somehow breaking the seal? Was it them? Well, the evidence in the New Testament says that actually the disciples, after the crucifixion of Jesus, ran off because they were scared. They were hiding from the authorities. Some of them denied that they even knew Jesus. Were these really men who could break a steel and move a stone? You need to answer that question. Second fact that demands a verdict is the empty tomb itself. Because the Bible writers all tell us that when the disciples first visited the tomb on the first Easter Sunday, there was not a body inside the tomb. The tomb was empty. Here's one of those accounts, John 20 verse 3. says, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The tomb had no one in it. The evidence that demands a verdict is, well... Where was Jesus then? And of course, this fact that the tomb was empty was something that the disciples, as soon as they were aware of it, began to scatter right through Jerusalem and the known world, proclaiming, the tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. And there's a few things to remember about this. Firstly, the disciples, when they were preaching this news about the tomb being empty, they didn't go to a far-flung place like Athens or Rome, first of all. They went back into Jerusalem, which was the same city where the tomb was. In other words, people could easily have checked out whether they were lying. 
because they could have gone up the road and seen the tomb for themselves. See, if I went to Paris today and I said, you know, I go to this brilliant church, it's called the King's Arms Church, we've got this building, King's House, and it burnt down yesterday. In Paris, they might believe me because they're quite a way away from the evidence itself. If I was to go into Bedford High Street and share the same news, people could easily tell whether I was lying by coming to Amptill Road and having a look for themselves. Well, it was exactly the same on that first Easter Sunday. The disciples went into Jerusalem to say, the tomb's empty. And if anyone wanted to accuse them of lying, they could have seen the tomb for themselves and gone inside and have a look. Add to that the fact that it wasn't just Christian writers who wrote that the tomb was empty. It was people who hated Christianity who also wrote that the tomb was empty. Jewish historians and Roman historians both write at the same time as Christians that the tomb was empty. Now, in terms of historical evidence, when you have people who are hostile to your message confirming your message, it's about the strongest historical evidence that you can possibly wish to find. People who didn't want the tomb to be empty wrote that it was. So the question is, where was Jesus? Third piece of evidence that demands a verdict is this, is the Roman guards themselves. What happened to the Roman guards? How, how could people get through these military soldiers? Again, Matthew 27, 65 says this, Take a guard, Pilate answered, go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. The Gospels tell us that not just was there a seal, not just was there a stone, but also there was a troop of Roman military soldiers guarding this particular tomb site. This probably would have been a troop of four soldiers, four Roman guards, who would have had four hours on, and then they would have been relieved by another four soldiers. And they would have guarded the tomb 24 hours a day so that no one could tamper with the tomb. Now remember that Roman soldiers were highly, highly disciplined and highly motivated to follow their orders. Some people would say, well, maybe these guys just fell asleep on the job. Maybe the disciples snuck in in the dead of night and rolled the stone away and got Jesus' body while they were asleep. Well, one student of Roman military discipline said this, that fear of punishment for Roman soldiers produced flawless attention to duty, especially in the night watches. And the reason for that is if a Roman soldier fell asleep on the job, he could be killed for doing so. One of the ways that you would kill a Roman soldier if you fell asleep on night duty is that you would strip him of his clothes and that you'd burn him alive in his own garments. That was the punishment for breaking your duty as a Roman soldier. The question is then, what happened? What happened to those Roman guards that Jesus was no longer in the tomb? Fact number four that demands a verdict are the eyewitnesses of the resurrection itself. Jesus appeared to many, many people after that first Easter Sunday. And of course, the more eyewitnesses you have of a particular event, the greater confidence you have in its historical reliability. For example, this morning, if the police arrested me after this meeting and accused me of robbing a bank this Sunday morning at whatever time it is now, 12.30, if they robbed me, one of the first things I would do is that I would call all 400 people in this room to be witnesses at my trial because you are eyewitnesses of the fact that Phil Wilthew was here 
this morning in King's Arms Church. That would be a very lopsided trial if I called you all to the courtroom. Because you are eyewitnesses that I am here. Well, the, the, the beautiful reality about Jesus' resurrection is that there were hundreds of eyewitnesses who had seen him alive after that first Easter Sunday. Here's one of the earliest accounts of the eyewitnesses. Again, it's written by Paul. He says this, Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He then appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then Jesus appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as the one abnormally born. Dr. Edwin Yamuchi, who's a professor of history at Miami University, said this, What gives a special authority to this list of witnesses as historical evidence is the reference to most of the 500 brothers being still alive. St. Paul says in effect, if you don't believe me, you can go and ask them. Now, if you called all 500 of those witnesses of the risen Jesus into a courtroom and they had six minutes each to testify and be cross-examined, you would have an amazing 50 hours of first-hand testimony of people who had seen the risen Jesus for themselves. That would be a completely lopsided trial. They were eyewitnesses. They'd seen Jesus themselves. The question then for you, if you are not a Christian or you're not sure about Jesus, is who had they seen? Who had they seen? Over 500 people. And then the last fact that demands a verdict are the lives of the disciples post-resurrection. See, if you looked at the disciples at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, and then compare it after the resurrection, it's like chalk and cheese. It's an incredible contrast. At the resurrection of Jesus, most of his disciples fled because they feared that they would be the next to be crucified. They fled into their homes. They were afraid of being arrested themselves. Many of them went back to their day jobs. Some of them began to deny that they even knew Jesus. And yet after the resurrection, after they'd seen the risen Jesus, wow, what a change came over them. Suddenly these men who before had been cowards, who'd run into hiding, suddenly were preaching fearlessly in the streets of Jerusalem, boldly in the face of great persecution and suffering. Do you know that 11 of the 12 disciples of Jesus were martyred for their faith? Many of them were, were tortured, some of them were set alight, some of them were crucified upside down, some of them were impaled, some of them were boiled alive. Why? Because they would not back down on this message. Jesus is alive and we've seen him. How do you explain that? And indeed there are millions of martyrs, Christian martyrs since that moment, who have all said, even to the pains of death, Jesus is alive. And we cannot help but speak of what we've seen. These are the evidences of Easter Sunday. What happened to these men to bring about such courage and such change? Guys, these are the facts. These are the facts of the Christian story. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. E.M. Blakelock, who's a professor of classics at Auckland University, said this. He said, I claim to be an historian. 
My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of all ancient history. I would suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that if you really consider the evidence for the resurrection, it takes far greater faith to not believe in the resurrection of Jesus than it does to believe. Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, if a man truly rose from the grave and defeated sin, defeated sickness, defeated death once and for all, if that really happened as an historical event, it should change your life. Because there is one who has done what no one else has ever done in the history of mankind. And of course, the Bible tells us why Jesus did these things. The Bible tells us not just what happened, but it tells us why they happened. And as we close, let me just tell you, Jesus died firstly. Why did Jesus die? The Bible says Jesus died for our sins. Sin is a Bible word which simply means anything in the human heart that separates us from knowing and connecting and being in relationship to a perfect God. Sin is anything in the human heart, be it thoughts, be it motives, be it agendas, be it behavior, evil in the human heart that stops us from knowing a God who is perfect in every way. The Bible says Jesus died as a substitute for our sin. In other words, the punishment that I deserved was laid upon him. As Jesus hung in agony on the cross, he was receiving the punishment for my sin and for your sin so that you could connect to the Father, the Father you've been waiting for all your whole life. Jesus died for sin. Why was he buried? Well, the Bible says Jesus was buried so that when you put your trust in following Jesus, like these guys who are about to get baptized, when you connect and make your decision to follow him, the Bible says your old life gets buried in the grave just as Jesus' body was buried in the tomb. You see, Phil Wilthew, the old Phil Wilthew, got buried a long time ago. I was six years old when I decided that I wanted to follow Jesus. The old Phil Wilthew is dead and buried. I tell you, this is a new man here. Why? Because my old life was buried in Christ. And when these guys go under the water in a few moments, that is symbolic of what's happened to their old life. Their old life has been buried with Christ. And then lastly, the Bible says Jesus was raised. Why was he raised? So that you too could live a new life. The kind of life that Jesus has won for you. Jesus has defeated sickness. He's defeated pain. He's defeated evil. He's defeated injustice. He's defeated those things. Why? So that as you follow him, you too can live a new life. This is the most amazing news that you will ever hear. It really is. And this is a free gift. It's a free gift of God's grace. Which means that you don't need to jump through hoops to know Jesus. All you have to do is believe what he's already done. It's finished, the Bible says. It's done. It's done. <laughs> this morning, you don't need to kind of sign a blank check. You don't need to kind of, you know, do forms. You don't need to kind of uh, sign kind of waivers. Actually, all you have to do to enter the kingdom of heaven this morning is just believe. Just believe what Jesus has already done 2,000 years ago at the cross in the empty tomb. Romans 10 verse 9 puts it this way. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise of God for every one of us this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you.